Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this Daily Journal podcast with Brian Kapitek. If you would like CLE credit for listening to this hour, if you go to the website dailyjournal.com, you will see this podcast as well as a link to a CLE test. And if you fill out that CLE test and send it in as indicated, you may receive an hour of CLE credit uh, for listening to this podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be dealing with the whole range of effects of COVID-19. I think we can say COVID-19 is what Nicholas Talib called a black, a true black swan event. It's an event that's outside the range, the realm of normal expectations, which is certainly what this is. And we've spoken on previous podcasts about specific elements of this. There's been a great deal written. But in this podcast with Brian Kabatek, we like to go over the entire effect, get a sense of the entire effect on the legal profession and all parts of it. There is no one we could better talk to about reviewing this over the entire profession than Brian Kabatek. He has been a leader within the legal profession for many years, the founder of his own law firm. He's been at the center of the most significant litigation in California for over a quarter century. He's a past president of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. He's a past president of the Consumer Attorneys of California, and he is currently chairman of the board of directors of Loyola Law School, from which he received his law degree, and that keeps him very current with all the issues affecting legal education and entry into the profession. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure to be here, and I enjoy this, and I hope that uh, we can shed some light on some of the dilemmas that are facing people today. Well, I, th- I think we can because we want to look at the entire picture. But tell us first about your own background. I mean, you're at the height of your career in terms of the time you've been doing this, and yet you've achieved this remarkable position of leadership in the profession. Tell us about how you got here, your background since law school and what you've done. Right. So I I worked at a very big law firm right out of law school and then ended up going to a much smaller firm and starting the plaintiff's practice at that firm. And then about almost 20 years ago, started my own firm in downtown Los Angeles. Currently, we have about 15 lawyers working with us. Uh, Before uh, March of 2020, we were uh, looking to add a a bunch more lawyers. And we we do have a couple coming aboard once they finish law school. Uh, But, of course, everything right now has thrown the question of the practice into into question. What's going to happen? Where are we going to go next? I also uh, got into leadership because I love politics. I like trial lawyer issues. Frankly, one of the issues I'm passionate about today is access to justice, which I don't think pertains to the either side of the V that you're on. It's it's all relevant and all important. Um, and access to justice is an issue that transcends just civil litigation. It goes into the whole court systems in California and the nation. And then I really feel passionate about young people coming out of law school today. They're not always young people. We have a lot of students who are returning. Uh, and I've got um, a, a passion for the future of the, of the legal profession. So I love working with the law school. I think Loyola is just a a terrific law school. I think it's underrated in a lot of respects um, on a national basis, but it's highly regarded in California and on the West Coast. We have a great dean, Michael Waterstone, who's uh, at the helm right now and moving that school into really the next century because 2020 was in fact or is in fact the 100th anniversary of Loyola Law School. So uh, it was going to be a huge celebratory year and of the dean using his power as Dean has decided to move that forward to 2021 and make that our 
100th anniversary event. So uh, a lot of exciting things happening out there. But I do want to mention that you came into the presidency of the L.A. County Bar Association at a very sensitive and difficult time for the association. And those of us who follow these things, and I think the entire profession, uh, really saw with great admiration what you were able to do at the time when you were president in dealing with all the sensitive issues uh, that had then come up. But talk to us. Yeah, you're very kind to say that. Thank you. Well, it's a very, very difficult thing to do, these these leadership positions at sensitive times. In ordinary times, sometimes they're just celebrations, but in sensitive times, uh, they're, they're extremely, extremely difficult. Let's talk about the impact. This thing comes along. I say this thing, COVID-19, I didn't mean to demean her. It, it's, it's so serious. Comes along in February, March. We begin to see the impact in March. From your perspective, what have been the largest impacts immediate impacts on on the profession well that's a that's a big giant question that could call for a big giant answer i think that it affects it's affecting every aspect of the profession particularly the trial bar if you practice in courts if you go to courts in any respect whether it's criminal civil family law probate etc it's had a tremendous impact on us i'm very concerned about a whole host of folks out there that make their living in the legal profession, not just lawyers, but people who depend upon the system. Uh, We have courts in Los Angeles that are closed right now and are going to be closed until June, late June. Uh, We are hearing, you know, and I've I've been serving at the request of the presiding judge on a committee of lawyers and judges to look at the situation of what's going to happen when it reopens. Um, We're looking at probably no serious civil trials um, again this year in at least civil. It could be at the very end of the year. Criminal and, and um, unlawful detainer and CCP 36 or preferential trials are going to go first. Uh, I, I'm worried about young people coming out of law school. Uh, I'm concerned about um, people sort of towards the end of their career and they're trying to finish their career and put enough money away for a nest egg. So uh, a lot of issues out there, Howard, and a lot of things we can talk about. Well, let's start with the trial courts because so much of the impact on law practice comes out of that. You said you think there might be civil trials by the end of the year, when in fact what we face in L.A. is not just the closure till June 22nd, but the continuance basically of all trial dates. Orange County Superior Court has automatically continued all trial dates for 25 weeks all on motion for 13 weeks, and we know how critical trial dates are to any resolution because it's the existence of a trial date that leads to settlement of the case. Everything revolves around the trial dates, and it is not, I think, unduly pessimistic to think there actually might not be any civil trials in California, in the large counties in California in 2020, especially when you're talking about jury trials because people may be very reluctant to come and serve as jurors. They won't want to be uh, in, the, in the crowded conference rooms. They won't want to sit next to each other in the jury box. And those that do turn up are going to, of course, be brought immediately into criminal trials. So what is on the table? I mean, that, that's, and you mentioned for the profession, but of course, it's a difficult problem for the clients who are facing this enormous delay. So what do you see as the options? I know you're involved with the L.A. Superior Court, but what are the options for for ameliorating or dealing with the impact of these delays? Well, uh, let's first start about talking about jury trials. You're absolutely right. It's it's a problem because 
Um, I can't imagine that many people right now would want to serve as jurors. I actually had the uh, misfortune, I guess you could call it, of being in the middle of a civil jury trial uh, on the 13th of March when Judge Stern declared a mistrial at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday because he saw what was coming. And uh, I look back on that experience now, Howard, and I was in a courtroom, a very tiny uh, courtroom in the Moss Courthouse in downtown Los Angeles, which is one of the tiniest ones. It's one of those jammed all the way at the east end by the elevators. And there were 30 people in that courtroom. And I look back at that now and I go, my God, it's a miracle. Nobody got sick. Yeah. Uh, and we were all very fortunate. So jurors aren't going to want to show up. We, we discussed that issue just this week about perhaps coming up with an, a, a long form jury questionnaire that prospective jurors would fill out before they even show up for jury duty and then where do you put the jurors uh as it is there's about 25 percent of the people who actually receive a jury summons that actually show up when conditions were good so you know what that's going to be like now uh i said um i i think the people that are going to show up for jury duty are going to be people i don't want in a jury box not from a, a demographic standpoint not from a traditional plaintiff's lawyer standpoint but they're going to be the people that, you know, aren't concerned about their health right away. So they're not the people I necessarily want to have in a jury box. Right. So we could start with that. But then let's think about ultimately what it's going to look like. They've been talking about virtual um, uh, voir dire where we would potentially voir dire people over the Internet. And I'm concerned about that disenfranchising members of the public who don't have ready access to uh, equipment that would allow them to participate in board gear like that, right? So that's that's just the start of our jury problem. But let's talk about, you know, it's interesting we're talking about this in the context of delay, but if you talk to the people who managed the last great court crisis in the 2008 to 10-11 time frame, the presiding judges and the others who managed that, one thing they'll tell you they learned is that no effect is simply temporary, that if you delay things for three or six or nine months, you have a ripple effect for years that puts everything back. Uh, so we're talking about a dramatic decline of what we've thought of as normal court procedures that provide provide justice for people. So you've mentioned, what are the things that are being discussed? I know so many people are talking about using technology for this because technology, you know, has been used now so successfully in mediations, for example, with with uh, Zoom technology and doing mediations. what Suppose we were taking the most imaginative route we could, recognizing the costs that are now being paid. I mean, enormous costs for clients, for law firms, but even in our goal, our obligations to our clients and what they're, to, to clients and what they're dealing with. Suppose we went far out in imagination and how this could be dealt with to cut down on the price. What are the, are things being discussed in terms of wider use of technology to substitute for in-person appearances through these events? Right. I mean, I think the one positive that's going to really come out of this is that uh, we're going to move from using telephone appearances to video appearances and video appearances might become de rigueur. There's my um, knowledge of French, by the way. And they they might become de rigueur because uh, if we have a good platform that works, I would much rather do a video appearance in front of a judge 
than a telephone appearance because you get that certain tell, right? When you're in front of a judge in person, he or she might, you know, raise their eyebrows at a certain point or might look at you a certain way. And it helps affect your ability to argue the case and discuss the case, not to mention the fact that I think it's a much better personal connection. So I think that's a good thing that's going to come out of this. I think it's going to be a long time even after June 22nd or whenever the courts in respective counties open up before people are going to be in the courtroom again. And we're going to learn to embrace this technology and it's going to be a good thing and we're going to learn to use it that way. I, I also think that um, I, I hope that sooner than later we can start doing voluntary and mandatory settlement conferences by using these various um, video platforms. Uh, I hope that we're able to uh, really move things along at a much more rapid pace. I mean, you know, I've been practicing long enough to remember when a 90-second status conference in a county other than your own required a personal appearance. And today we're able to avoid that. I think we're going to have a lot more of that. And in fact, frankly, I think that you can have more case management and status conferences to move cases along if we're doing it by these kinds of various uh, technologies and video platforms and the like. So that's the good news. Now let's move to the bad news, which, which, but let me linger one more minute on the good news. The good news is let's get those dispositive motions heard. And frankly, for the love of God, folks, please start cooperating and getting along better on some of these matters. Go back to your cases where you had motions or you had disputed issues pending and try your best to resolve them or ask for informal discovery conferences to get these things moving along. In, in whatever kind of case you're in. Now let's move to the bad but, news. I'm the sorry, bad news Brian, is, but before you move on to the bad news in terms of talking about the trials, I think it's important to, to talk about most of the things that happened in courtrooms. If you put, if you take criminal cases which require constitutional issues involving in-person appearances and jurors and witnesses, if you take out, except for those three circumstances, the criminal proceeding, the requirement of a juror, or the requirement of a witness, which would involve evaluating credibility, everything else that occurs in civil litigation does not require an in-person appearance. Isn't that right? I, I think any time that you would need to put on potentially, quote-unquote, live evidence yes. would fit in that category. But other than that, I agree 100%, and I think it's making us think this through. How often do I have to go into the courthouse? Well, in terms of moving along then, because not only are we talking about the jury trial, but because the jury trial dates have not only been extended, but all the law in motion, the summary judgment, uh, and all the procedural dates have been changed to the new, to the, what will be the continued trial dates. Is there not a way, or was there not a way to at least immediately focus on dealing with all those pre-trial proceedings? that didn't involve any live witnesses or jurors? Right, and I, I think certainly I understand that even as of today, some counties are already doing um, remote hearings, uh, and I'd encourage you know any county that can or any judge that can to start doing them now. Yeah, we could do um, dispositive motions, motions to eliminate pretrial hearings. All of this kind of stuff could be done remotely and should be done remotely, you know, sooner than later, right? I, I mean, I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. That's, that kind of thing, right? So what does it take to yeah. get there? I mean, obviously, 
we know the courts are under huge pressure, and they're doing as well as they possibly can do given the immediate crisis. But you're you're deeply involved in talking with the court about this. What will it take? How long will it take uh, to move to video conferences for dealing with these procedures? I know what's involved. The the court uh, the court staff has to be in to deal with the case management system. Uh, but a lot of off-the-shelf technology on notebook computers, for example, uh, could be used to do all this, couldn't it? Right. I think as soon as you have the ability to access the docket and a clerk so that there can be a record, um, I I would expect that with the exception of those judges who are potentially not technologically savvy, everyone could start doing it right away. And, And that's kind of the good news, right? I mean, there is... If this were 20 years ago, oh, it would be impossible. Impossible. Literally, right. Rock in a hard place. But today, we have this technology. That this, a lot of the courts have electronic dockets, um, paperless files. So it really is right there at our fingertips. If we can just connect the dots, it can happen sooner than later. And is I think uh, you know, and the committees you're on play such a critical role here. Because my sense is that the the event in Feb- events in February and March were such a shock uh, that people just took a long. They were just so shocking that people's only reaction was, "We have to put stuff off. We have to deal with statute of limitations problems. We have to continue dates." The Judicial Council has done wonderful things in ameliorating effects through the emergency powers granted by the governor, but that initial shock has now been absorbed. So we can really start to focus on how fast can we move with technology, uh, not just to deal with what has to be done with the immediate shock, but to start moving along. And isn't that what's critical for the committees that you're working on now with the courts? Right. I think what's happened is that that we have gotten past this initial shock and the horror of it, and we're now trying to focus on, and I think there's a real attitude in the courts on focusing on solutions. Um, I think in some respects, the smaller counties, which, of course, after Los Angeles, every every county is a smaller county, is are able to manage the situation better. Uh, I think the biggest problem we're seeing in the immediate future is the recognition that there is this thing called the United States Constitution. Perhaps you've heard of it that guarantees certain rights to criminal defendants that I mean trials are going to take precedent. Criminal trials are going to take precedent. Uh, and then you have these other categories of trials. So judges are getting retrained on how to handle those cases and handle those trials. Uh, and I think that as we look forward now, there is an attitude amongst the bar of let's figure this out. Let's come up with solutions. Um, I, I sure I, I'm, I'm an impatient soul. I've always been an impatient soul. I think that you're going to find that things are going to move slowly. Uh, I wish they would move faster, but I can assure people listening to this that the leadership in the courts are taking this very seriously and trying to come up with solutions. We're all taking it seriously and trying to come up with solutions. Um, The sooner we get back to this, to setting hearings and things, the better things are going to be. And I think everyone does understand. You mentioned the criminal. Everyone does understand the constitutional requirements on the criminal side. And clearly, those have to be complied with and arrange their own set of issues. I think the focus that we're talking about is on the civil side in terms of dealing with, with civil disputes where the constitutional constraints do not impact the same way. We've also seen... Movement, for example, in the Judicial Council now 
in amending uh, under the emergency regulations the Code of Civil Procedure uh, to permit uh, videotape depositions uh, to be done, which, of course, have always been available under the uh, federal rules. Are, are people, in terms of adapting to technology in the law practice, focus on that for a moment in terms of adapting to technology. Are people moving forward with online video depositions to move, to, to move cases along? Yes. Uh, my office has done several so far, and that's good. Um, you know, like everything, there is a push-pull, right? I mean, people are resistant to it in some respects because they don't get it, they don't understand. Uh, I, I've heard stories, anecdotal stories, about um, witnesses being caught texting with the lawyer who represents them, you know, being coached yeah. during a deposition. Um, but I, I think that we overcome this and we come up with solutions. Like one of my lawyers asked me about this yesterday, just yesterday, and I said, uh, well, what I would, the first thing I do in an admonition is ask the witness to identify any, um, personal devices that they have, iPads, phones, anything like that, and ensure that they're, they're turned off and they're out of, out of the way during the deposition. So that's part of the admonition. We'll overcome that. Video depositions are great. I think there are depositions where you want to be in the room or, you want to be in the room with your witness, and frankly, there's somewhere I like to be in the room with, with the witness I'm taking the deposition of. But, you know, we deal with what we have to deal with. We'll get back to that. But, um, you know, again, going back in time and, and sounding like the old guy here, uh, we all can remember a time when we'd have to go across the country to take a two-hour deposition of, of, of a peripheral witness, and um, we don't have to do that anymore, and we can figure this out. So a lot of good will come out of this. Yeah. So let's move on to you were going to talk to how how do we deal with the absence of effective early trial dates and the ability to have civil jury trials? What are the options there? Yeah. So um, it, the options may not be great. And it, it may simply be that we've got to think about alternatives. So let me give a few of those alternatives. Um, first of all, smaller trials, and I don't mean disrespectful to anyone, but let's be you know real. There are cases that are smaller that have to go to trial that should go to trial. There may be ways to stipulate, for example, to a smaller jury. Um, there may be ways to um, uh go through an expedited jury trial process, which a statute exists that you could do an expedited jury trial. Each side gets a day, for example. That would certainly be a more humane way to do it. Um, and then I, one, one thing that I've thought about in the last few days are bigger cases, bigger trials. Um, perhaps what parties could do short of a jury trial is to do a um, mediated jury process so it would focus group process which would work something like this is that you get a focus group you hire a focus group and you know you and i are on a case on opposite sides and you say you know case is only worth this much and i say no it's worth this much or whatever the disputed issues may be you put a uh, a focus group in place you know properly socially distanced uh let the issue sort of be hear, hear what they're going to do about it and then use that as the way to try to get your case resolved, right? As opposed to going through a, a full bone trial. Um, so, I mean, those are just a few ideas that I've had about how we can do this and how we can get it moving. Otherwise, we're not going to be looking at, at trials probably again this year. And, and let me mention one thing, Howard, that I think is realistic because I lived through uh, being a trial lawyer after 9-11. And after 9-11, one thing was certain is that Juries, if you had a case that was 
righteous and that the defendant conduct was, you know, bad or, or the person was seriously injured or, or whatever the case may be, but it was a righteous case as a plaintiff, juries were with you. You know, juries were with you. Juries were like, yeah, this, this is unfair. This person was treated unfair. But the opposite was true also. But if, if there was a case where somebody was, you know, exaggerating or they were stretching the truth, it could be, it could be a PI case or it could be a business case. Boy, you had, um, you had a real hard time convincing the jury. And I think that's going to repeat all over again when we get back to trials after this experience. I think, you know, I think that's right. I, I mentioned in other contexts on these podcasts that given everything that's going on, this is really a time where great lawyering makes a difference. Uh, the ability of lawyers that understand how to function in this environment, that understand with some of the legal issues how to go back in history and deal with them, the quality of lawyering in this environment is going to make a bigger difference, I think, than in the pre-March-February environment. Um, and, and I think that's just a real factor. You know, in terms of the juries, there is technology now that you may have used and that a lot of lawyers used using the Mechanical Turk uh, uh, technology uh, to impanel on the Internet varieties of jurors over the Internet. Uh, and so you put together juries of different composition and you show them depositions and testimony and you begin to get a very real estimate and you can run a dozen or even 50 juries with different composition of people and show them the same evidence. You get their reaction and people, I think one of the things that's happening here is people getting used to how credible the technology is. You know, I've, I've written about this in other contexts. It's worth a moment. You know, telemedicine now is really having a huge impact on medicine. One of the things that telemedicine tried started doing years ago, and you think it was the last thing that could function in telemedicine, which is medicine between patient and doctor over the Internet, was in psychiatry, what's called telepsychiatry, telehealth psychiatry. Right. And in fact, and this began on res Indian reservations in Arizona, has now been widely replicated. And it turns out in peer-reviewed articles psychiatrists talking to patients over the internet synchronously when they're both on has the same therapeutic effect as people being in the same office. And even asynchronously, if the psychiatrist sends a group of questions to the patient who then answers them to a video recorder and a tape or disc is sent to the psychiatrist who then sends back another disc, that has the same therapeutic effect because it turns out, and it's very difficult for people of different generations that come to grips with this. It turns out there are a fair number of people who are more comfortable talking to a camera than talking to a person. And because of the amount of television people watch, there is, in many cases, a greater ability to sense emotions and credibility watching a full face on a TV screen than there is looking at an angle for a witness sitting in a jury trial chair. And it may be, and I, it's just something worth discussing and talking about this in an intergenerational way, it may be that there is a wider use because of how technology has impacted our lives, a wider use for technology in this context than we previously imagined. And I hope that, I don't know, I'm not part of the committees that are doing this, but I hope people are looking, are they looking at this data in terms of the credibility of the use of technology? for making these determinations? 
I don't think so yet, and I think there's a lot of reluctance. But I, I will say this, if we can just take a, a, a momentary side trip. I, I am, one issue I'm very passionate about is uh, the access to justice, as I said at the beginning of the show, but particularly the affordability of our legal, civil legal system. And I think that um, that it's no one should have to pay $100,000 in legal fees to dispute a $200,000 legal dispute, right? And unfortunately, I think we've evolved to that. So I think all of the things you're talking about are, are perfectly suited for ways that we can streamline the civil litigation process. And I'm not fully ready to talk about a um, virtual jury trial where you actually get a verdict at the end that way. Uh, particularly for the for for a big case or a larger case where I think it's important people be there and I think the the interaction between um, jurors is important but I certainly think that there are that, that it's not one size fits all and there's got to be ways that we can do exactly what you're talking about to move the the cases along and get people justice in a fair and equitable way that's also economical. Yeah, the access to justice point is critical, and it's so great that you raised it, because one of the effects of technology is to reduce costs. I mean, look at it even in terms of, uh, you know, doing mediation online through Zoom. Uh, people don't have to travel. You know, we used to have diff great difficulty getting people in, in cross-country lawsuits, getting people to come to the same spot. If you need an expert for 15 minutes, it required the whole day. Now, with the use of technology, you can bring in people for bits of time. People don't have to travel. And the cost, the overall cost, when you look at it, turns out to be much lower. So the cost aspect of access to justice, I think, is very important here. And as this goes on, do you think people will be more and more open to utilizing these things in terms of moving along? Yeah, in a word, yes. Yeah. I do. I think people are embracing it more. I think that they're finding that their their lives can be more complete and more full. Although I will say the downside of all of this is that my entire day, my working day now, uh, during the sort of nine to five hours, is conference calls and Zoom conferences and things like that. And then I find working harder because I do that all day long. I go home at night, and then I have to catch up on my work. No, I know. Believe me. As as someone who's been in this house for I've forgotten how many weeks, I understand that, that, that completely. But also in terms of going forward, we're measuring whether the perfect, or in this case what we're used to, the perfect is, is the enemy of the good. I mean, if the alternative to new technology are endless delays and significant costs— then you really have to measure the comfort of what we're used to or even its effectiveness against the fact that if you don't make the changes, you're going to face these huge challenges because court budgets, there's not going to be money to increase court budgets to deal with all this. Will, will there be? No, and, and the worst, it's the opposite. I mean, we're going back 10 years when we were fighting to refund the courts. That's my fear is we're going to be doing that all over again. But to bring this matter home, the technology that's available now could make a lot of these problems easier. I mean, no one should have to drive, you know, an hour to get to court and park to argue a simple motion. We we mostly resolve that with the use of telephone and, and court call and things like that. But we um, we can go further. 
and we can do more. Yeah, and as as we talk about this for our listeners, I want to make clear in talking to Brian when he indicates how difficult it will be. In fact, Brian and his law firm is one of the most technologically sophisticated law firms practicing today. So he is not in the position of, of someone who's resisting technology. He has used in his practice the current technology to the maximum way and has really advanced his use. I don't want anyone to misunderstand this conversation when Brian talks about reluctance. It's not his personal reluctance because he's been a leader in using technology here. What effect does this have on law firms? So we have the trial dates going out. Let's move from the courts. We have firms of all sizes, without being specific in numbers or the names of firms, but generally, from your knowledge, what what effect? We've seen the stories of large law firms holding back partner draws and and, uh, furloughing people. What effect has this had on law firms, uh, this impact of of the social distancing and, and the virus? Oh, I think it's had a lot of impacts. I think that, that, that a lot of the younger people who are living in, younger lawyers who are living in, um, smaller apartments are going stir crazy. Uh, we had our annual, our, sorry, our, our weekly meeting this morning, um, with all of our lawyers by Zoom. And I could tell some of the younger lawyers, um, are, you know, just about to climb the walls, um, with this. So there's a, uh, an emotional and psychological impact that it's had on people. Um, but I think that the impact it's had is there's a real financial impact. I'm getting calls from um, smaller firm lawyers who traditionally work with me on cases, and some of them are nearly in tears. They're saying, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent this month. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my mortgage. Uh, I've heard people having to, to lay off or furlough their employees. I've heard frustrations about them not getting the uh, paycheck protection program, their bank, you know, overlooking them and they didn't get the money they asked for. Uh, and then we switch to the other side of the V with some of the defense firms out there. And, um, you know, these firms work on relatively small margins in the sense that they don't have big reserves. I think one thing you can say about plaintiff's firms is we're kind of used to peaks and valleys. Defense firms, hourly firms, traditional firms, they need their cash flow, um, and they've got problems. Um, I, I, I hear about, like, that, you know, 15, 20-year non-equity partner who doesn't know if he or she's going to be getting a paycheck or a draw. Um, and then I, I know that there is an impact on where the business is. A lot of firms make their money um Leading the, the four or five months leading up to trial, that's been taken away from them. And then clients, of course, are saying, uh, uh, well, why are you moving this case along? It's not going anywhere. I don't want to write checks. I don't want to pay. So it's a huge economic burden. And then I think finally, and the, the one thing that, that don't forget are those very young people who are just graduating law school. You know, it's interesting before we talk about that, what this, this comes together with our discussion about trial dates, because it turns out though this phrase is not often used in this way, that trial dates are the most critical financial indicator for litigation law firms. We think of them separately, but in fact, if you think of of how markets function, and don't mean to be too analytical about this, but think of how it functions, the single most important operative factor in cash flow for both plaintiffs and defendants litigation firms are trial dates. If there are no trial dates, the amount of work needed to be done goes down, and if there are no trial dates, fewer cases settle, 
which traditionally provides a fair amount of cash flow because trial dates are the greatest single motivation for settlement. So as we talk about the importance of trial dates here for the legal profession, and of course the impact on the clients who have to wait, we have to also realize the financial impact of the change of trial dates. That's what's driving so much of this harm. I, you know, I agree. And, and what I was going to say about that, too, is it's not a plaintiff or defense or civil litigation problem. It transcends the whole system because those dates are the dates by which we mark our most significant work in most yes. cases, right? Yes, yes, of course. That's why in many ways separating out, getting back to our previous discussion, separating out the factors where witness and jurors are not involved. For example, it w might make a tremendous difference overall if all the pretrial stuff went forward including the motions for summary judgment, because I think the data right. from the L.A. Superior Court is that it's a very significant number. Half the cases that come to final resolution, putting settlement to one side, are decided often by summary judgment. And the denial of a motion for summary judgment is a major factor in leading to settlement. And we know that while the motion for summary judgment is pending, that uncertainty is a major factor for settlement. So simply the ability to move on the pretrial things which we've been talking about, including the filing argument and resolution of motions for summary judgment, would, that alone would have a significant impact, even aside from the change of the trial dates, wouldn't it? This is exactly the debate I was having with a colleague just this week. I said, we want those uh, dispositive motions heard. We need those dispositive motions heard because there's an attorney out there who has advised their clients uh, we have a shot at summary judgment. So the client says, until I've gotten that summary judgment or adjudication motion ruled on, I'm not offering any money on this because I might get out of it. And the the person I was debating with says, don't we want those kicked way down the road? Don't we? I said, no, no, my gosh, we want them heard now. And I, in fact, I would go so far, Howard, to suggest Let's start getting pretrial motions and eliminate heard, even though we may not have a trial for six or eight months. Let's get them heard because someone needs certainty before they make a recommendation on what to pay to settle a case. And also so many cases, you know, as, as we go through this, so many cases, you go through extensive discovery and eight year or 18 months later, the motion for summary judgment comes up and the motion for summary judgment, then it gets decided on a point of law that could have been resolved even before there was any discovery. So aren't there many cases where both in its resolution and in the knowledge of risk, there are one or two critical points of law that come up, which if they were resolved earlier, would move the system along much more quickly as well. Right. Certain types of cases are more amenable to others, like an insurance, bad faith or coverage case. You want that policy interpreted and you want it interpreted relatively early. Um, but, you know, if, if we could redesign the system to where these kind of matters are teed up early parties meet and confer, what do you have? Let's tee them up early. Let's get a resolution. Then we might be able to move more cases along. And at the same time, not depriving, you know, honest ethical lawyers of their opportunity to build their client for the work that needs to get done on a case. And now all this is taking place. We're talking about, you know, cutbacks in court availability and moving trial dates. 
but it's all taking place right at the beginning of what could be a litigation explosion, isn't it? I mean, numerous new cases are going to come out of what has now been happening with COVID-19 across a whole range of areas, aren't they? Oh, yeah. It's going to be employment, all kinds of employment cases. And then, of course, we have the insurance, business interruption insurance cases that my firm's heavily involved in. And then we're going to see uh, you know, finance type cases, collection cases, unlawful detainer cases, uh, things that are going to come out of this. As I told the LA Times last week, there's litigation out there we can't even imagine right now that's going to happen as a result of COVID-19. And all of this litigation that we can go over, certainly business interruption is going to be litigated extensively. There have been major, many major lawsuits filed on behalf of, of restaurants. You filed one. There are others filed in San Francisco. Of famous restaurants, the French Laundry in Napa Valley, Mousson Franks here in Los Angeles. Uh, so we've got the business interruption and the employment. And so here we are. We're wrestling with cases that are already on calendar that are being postponed and causing enormous problems. New cases will be filed, and those cases will then presumably have to go to the back of the line of the cases that are now pending and being continued. So to deal with this situation, if we focus on the needs of justice, the interest of clients, the requirement of resolving disputes, don't we have to begin to think dramatically about possible changes in how we resolve these disputes? Well, I, I agree, and I think that one of the things we need to start thinking about is revamping the discovery rules, revamping the way cases are, are handled. Um, I think that some courts have done a better job than others at recognizing that it's not one size fits all. So, for example, to be proactive about this, let's start thinking about easier cases. And 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 one of the things in a group I was in, we were looking at uh, – faster rules or to move cases along. And someone, actually the chief justice suggested $250,000 or less. And our little working group came to the conclusion that it's not so much driven by money, although that's a factor, it's also driven by complexity. So there are, you know, million dollar cases, which are not complex. And once we identify non-complex cases, Howard, I'd want to see a way that we could move those cases very fast through the system, because why should they sit there at the same speed as a, you know, massive five or six week trial, which is going to consume a lot of time. So that would be one way I'd look at it. Let's move those cases along faster. Let's get them moving faster and then start looking at ways that you can potentially move other cases into other um, mechanisms to, to get the dispute resolved early, such as a early summary judgment motion or an early finding a case or, you know, I think the courts were doing a very good job before this on um, settlement, voluntary settlement conferences, mandatory settlement conferences, attorney, volunteer attorney settlement conferences, because we have to do something to go back to this as business as usual would be a mistake. Well, but you said a very important thing in distinguishing not in the amount that's involved, but in complexity, because, you know, for many people, I mean, when you talk about large cases, you're often involved with large companies and with class actions. But there are many individuals for whom, even, of course, they're dealt by different rules, the very small ten and $25,000 cases. But if you look at a claim for $100,000, there are many individuals for whom that amount means more to how they're going to live their life 
than what a $50 million dispute might mean for a large corporation. And if we're really interested in access to justice to measure solely on the amount of dollars involved might not be the way to achieve most access to justice. Yeah, that's right. And and when we start thinking about the value of cases, it's not the only factor here. Um, it's It's what does the case need to get resolved? And, you know, if we looked at this from a holistic approach, which I've never completely understood that word, but if we look at it from a holistic approach or a sort of almost like a triage approach, a case comes in like a patient were coming into the ER and we look at it and we decide how this patient or this case needs to be treated, right? And so it might be a simple it, on its surface, it looks like a, an employment case, and I understand that's a lot of cases filed in, in superior courts throughout the state these days. It could be an employment case, but are they all the same? Some are different than others. Some involve, you know, age discrimination. Some involve somebody who just, you know, is mad because they, they were owed a bonus and they didn't get paid their bonus. Whatever the case may be, let's look at it holistically and say, I'm going to identify that case and we're going to figure out the best way to treat this case. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm being unrealistic in this, but there there should be some way to do this. And if the case is a case that could be resolved at the two-day jury trial, hey, we're going to get you your two-day jury trial, you know, 120, 180 days from now. And I'm sure there are people listening to me and thinking I'm crazy because when I started talking about this, both the plaintiff and defense bar, they both thought I sold out to the other. You know, they said, oh, you're just you're just saying what the plaintiff wants. You're just saying what the defense wants here. So it's hard for people to change. But, you know, if you're being if you're being criticized by both sides, that's often an indication that you're on to yeah. something. But certainly something right. We, okay. Certainly what, what you're talking about and you're going to be you are and will be one of the leaders of this and thinking this thing through in terms of how we move more efficiently, because moving quickly and efficiency is a real aspect of access to justice. You mentioned earlier, and I don't want to end the the podcast without talking about the impact of this on law students and young lawyers entering the profession. You're very aware of it as chairman of the board at Loyola. How has Loyola responded to this? Have they gone to online classes or what what are they doing in the midst of this? Yeah. And so, I mean, first of all, I think everyone who's a, a lawyer admitted to practice law in California can remember with vivid detail taking the bar exam or their last you know, few weeks of law school. And Loyola has done a um, remarkable job, I think as many law schools have, dealing with this. So all classes have been online since this started in March. Uh, the, the school made a decision to go pass fail and um, a tough decision at that because it would impact potentially people with scholarships who are dependent on maintaining a certain grade point average. And what the school has done is guaranteed that no one is going to lose their scholarship. And in fact, some students who weren't on scholarship before will qualify for them. So the school and the alumni are digging into their pockets to cover that, that expense, which, you know, is quite substantial, but it's the right thing to do. Um, so online is, is tough also for a student who's depending on grades to get their job. And I, I, I've said that I think employers will look at that, you know, a year from now, two years from now and shrug their shoulders and go, well, that was, you know, spring of 2020, COVID-19. And that's just that semester. Everyone understands. I think the more critical issue, Howard, is frankly, the, the graduating student. 
Um, first of all, you know, that's one of the best times in your life when you're finishing up law school and you have that great feeling. I can remember the feeling I had when I took my last exam going, gosh, this is like the last uh, 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 higher education exam I'm going to take in my life. And then you go through graduation and what a great experience graduation day is. We have so many students who are the first in their family to graduate from law school, the first in their family potentially to have even gone to college and you know, several thousand people show up at the LMU campus in Westchester for graduation. What a great day. And that's not happening now. And hopefully it'll happen when, when it can in the fall. And now um, it's all but certain that there will be no bar exam in July. In fact, I think it's, it's, that's been decided. Um, they're talking about September, but my own feeling is that's a mistake because if you have a September bar exam, you're going to have to start studying around the end of July. And what if, you know, four weeks into it, we find out that that's not really going to happen. We can't socially distance for a bar exam in September. So I, I think the smarter thing is either ticket to late November or maybe just forget it all together and do the February bar, which there's no, there's no positive about that. And I, I could talk about what the, what the talk is on the street about both jobs and this potential provisional license that the bar is talking about. Well, talk about both. I mean, the provisional license is very interesting because some states are doing that. They're granting an 18-month provisional license uh, without having taken the bar, letting graduates to practice under the supervision of lawyers. And of course, there are states, Wisconsin, for example, where no bar exam is given, where graduates of the two law schools, Marquette, and the University of Wisconsin are automatically admitted to practice. Do you think the provisional license would work? I, I don't I don't know the the huge upside to that. And let me explain why. First of all, I think that you'd have to have at least uh, my opinion as a 10 year practicing lawyer in good standing. I've heard five. Um, but, you know, I'd want to make sure for the public safety that it's somebody who's been practicing long yeah. enough and, and and is watching the person. I'm not sure what it means they can and can't do. Are they just a glorified certified law clerk? And do they get paid? Um, I mean, is there an obligation? I mean, is this going to be yeah. like free labor for senior lawyers, or will there be payment for can't, it? Can't, you know, and, and that was a question that I confronted at Loyola, and I said, under California law as it currently stands, you can't not pay someone. Yeah. You know, you, you have to pay them at least minimum wage if they come aboard and they're working at your, at your shop. Uh, unless the governor signed a some kind of executive order that way, which I'd be opposed to. I think that's unfair. You know, yeah. it, it, it's like you said, slave labor. It's not fair. Um, we probably will see people, you know, getting paid not a lot of money. But then that's that kind of turns on the other issue we talked about earlier. There aren't that many jobs out there. So, you know, if someone's even being paid a, a salary to $50,000 a year to be a, a, a new lawyer, um, they, the firms that that might do that are probably not able to do that. Now, I've reached out to some of our alumni, and some of them are just good people, and they'll find a way to bring a few folks aboard so that they can do something. But you know, Howard, um, about half of the graduating students, at least at Loyola, um, didn't have jobs as of this occurrence. I mean, that's typical. That's not unusual. That's and, and, and passing the bar exam and becoming a member of the bar is such an important matter in terms of ability, especially with governments, uh, to be able to get jobs. Right, right. So I don't know that, that the provisional license is a 
a, a huge boon or a stopgap at all. I think that um, it, it's sort of a nice thing to do in some respects. But what I've been telling young people graduating from law school right now is I said, this is terrible. You'll get through it. As my mother would say, this too shall pass. Um, but get a job. Any job you can get right now so that you, A, have something to do and keep yourself busy, and B, um, have something to put on your resume because other jobs, when this is over, other jobs will open up, and the people who are going to get hired is the person who shows that they worked at XYZ firm for eight months or six months before they took the bar, and uh, that's going to make a big difference. And, you know, in terms of what's going on, and then a, a little footnote story, but, you know, you talk about the pass-fail grading and going to online. Columbia University has now been sued, among others, uh, but Columbia has been sued uh, calling for a, a reimbursement of partial tuition because of going online uh, rather than being in residence. And part of that lawsuit is also against pass-fail grades, which the plaintiff's class is claiming diminishes the value of the degree they get. So there'll be litigation over this. But you also mentioned the feeling we used to feel we graduate and we've taken our last exam. There's a wonderful story about that. Justice Cardozo uh, gave a graduation speech to a law school class. I think it was the Columbia Law School class. And he said, you know, when I graduated from law school, I said, thank goodness I've taken my last exam. And then I took the bar exam and passed it. Then I became a lawyer and trial court judges judged me. Said so then I got on the court and appellate courts above judged me. So then I got on the Supreme Court of the United States and I thought, well, at last. But then I found out that the law students on the law reviews criticize everything that I do. So <laughs> there is a <laughs> there is a cycle here. Brian, it, I, it's been wonderful. I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us. As I said, and to our listeners, Brian is at the center of all of these issues in the legal profession. He is one of the people who will solve these problems. He's at the height of his career. He's a significant leader, a major leader in the legal profession. He will be dealing with this. Brian has also written, as others have, a great deal for the Daily Journal on this subject. His most recent one was Law in the Time of COVID-19, but he has many other articles that he's written for the Daily Journal. If you're a subscriber, you can see all those articles, not just the current articles, but in the search box, you can bring up all the past articles that Brian and others, and there are many, that have written on the COVID-19 range of issues. You can bookmark them. You can save them for future use. They are unique. They're a treasure trove of analysis that appears no place else. If you're not a subscriber, it's relatively easy to cure that, if we use that word. If you go to dailyjournal.com, that website, which is outside the paywall, you will see in the upper right-hand corner a subscribe link button. And if you press that, you will get information on how you may subscribe and get access to all of these wonderful articles that Brian and other people have written. We are very pleased to have this podcast outside the paywall and widely available. But if you want to get learn more, to have access to all these wonderful writings, you do have the option of choosing to subscribe. I thank Brian for appearing. Thank you for listening. Daily Journal has been very pleased to bring you this podcast. Thank you.